Welcome to the conversation. This podcast is produced by QSource as part of Medicare's quality improvement organization efforts to share information, educate clinical staff, and encourage improvement through best practices. Each episode discusses a topic that is timely and applicable to you, your staff, and your patients. November is Diabetes Awareness Month, and we've chosen to have a weekly four-part discussion on this topic. In this episode, the conversation is about diabetes and depression. Quality Improvement Specialist Kathy Ray leads a conversation with Mary DeGroote, Associate Professor of Medicine and Acting Director of the Diabetes Transition Research Center at Indiana University. Now, let's get this conversation started. QSource is excited today to have Mary DeGroote with us for a conversation around diabetes, chronic health management, and psychosocial effects affecting those um, impacting uh, with diabetes treatment. So we want to get the conversation started. Um, Mary is a clinical health psychologist whose research focuses on examining the mechanisms that link diabetes and depression, as well as the development of accessible interventions to treat depression among adults and socioeconomically and culturally diverse populations with diabetes. And since 2017, she has been a member of the American Diabetes Association Board of Directors, she is the immediate past president for the American Diabetes Association Healthcare and Education, and she has contributed more than 100 articles and presentations on the psychosocial aspects of type 1 and type 2 diabetes. So let's get the conversation started. Welcome, Mary. Feel free to share a little bit about your work and what your experiences are with us today. Great. Well, thank you so much, Kathy, for having me on this uh, series of podcasts. I'm delighted to be able to join you. Um, and thank you for that lovely introduction. Um, I have been, as you mentioned, I, I my work has focused both on uh, the research side of the equation and understanding diabetes and uh, depression and diabetes distress, and more recently, the effects of COVID-19. Um, I also work with patients directly. So I am a clinical health psychologist uh, in practice uh, here at um, Indi here on faculty at Indiana University School of Medicine and uh, in practice at IU Health, uh, embedded in the adult endocrinology practice. So uh, so I work with with patients uh, every week on these topics, um, in addition to understanding in a deeper way how how these, different conditions are related to one another. So delighted to be able to talk with you today. Perfect, perfect. So we do have a series of at least four podcasts with you and we're so excited to get that started. Um, today, we would like to focus the conversation on the diabetes and how it's linked to their mental health, specifically to depression um, and what that impact looks like for the community, the, those that are out there with diabetes. Yeah, right. So we've been learning a lot about diabetes and depression over the past 20 to 30 years. Uh, when I was in graduate school and even before then working at the Joslin Diabetes Center in Boston uh, back in the 1990s, um, the, the whole idea that depression and diabetes went hand in hand was something that uh, certainly patients recognized um, and family members recognized, uh, but there wasn't actually much literature at that time. So our understanding about this has really evolved over the past 25 to 30 years. 
We now know that elevated depressive symptoms affect one in four people with diabetes, and that's true for people with type 1 diabetes, which is the autoimmune disorder, um, which typically onsets uh, in children um, and adolescents, but also can affect and be a new diagnosis for adults uh, in their 20s, 30s, 40s, or even 50s. <laughs> We, uh, we know that uh, clinical depression, that is depression that affects, consistently affects people's mood, feeling depressed, sad, or down for at least two weeks or longer, um, a lack of interest in things that people would otherwise enjoy. And those either or both of those symptoms combined with other symptoms that are consistent with depression. So changes in appetite or weight, uh, changes in sleep that might be disrupted sleep or wanting to sleep much more than one would normally sleep, uh, changes to energy, just feeling fatigued um, and not able to have the energy to do normal daily activities, as well as disruptions in concentration, maybe feeling very distracted or ruminating, um, feeling worthless. Uh, or feeling excessively guilty about th things in the past or the present, um, as well as potentially thoughts of death. Um, all of those symptoms can come together. You don't need to have all of them to qualify uh, as having clinical depression. Um, it really only takes five to qualify for the diagnosis of major depressive disorder. But we know that when those come together, whether that's <clears throat> five symptoms, seven symptoms, eight symptoms, uh, that that in combination with diabetes is very powerful. And that affects one in eight people with diabetes. And again, that's consistent for people with type one diabetes as well as type two diabetes. When we think about the burden of diabetes and depression in communities, uh, diverse communities, uh, mm -hmm. We have learned, sadly, over time that, uh, that depression and diabetes is an equal opportunity experience. So uh, rates of depression and diabetes are just as high, and these are very high numbers, by the way. One in four for symptoms, just the symptoms alone, one in eight are higher than we see in the general population. So these are, uh, these are important numbers for us to be attuned to, not only for people with diabetes and their families, but also for healthcare providers. So we have lots of good reasons to care about why diabetes and depression go together. Um, the, the mechanisms underlying this relationship are not yet well known. We think that there are multiple ways that diabetes and depression find each other uh, and um, correspond and coexist for people with diabetes. Um, we know that it is a bi-directional relationship. So we used to think that, that diabetes was hard, and it is, uh, and that uh, one of the consequences of dealing with a chronic disease 24-7, 365, would naturally be a change in mood. Mm -hmm. And while that is true, that the presence of diabetes does increase the risk of developing depression over time for many reasons, um, we've also learned that people who have a lifetime history of depression, so depression sometime in their past, um, have an increased risk of developing type 2 diabetes later in life, upwards to about a 38% increased risk. And so that's important because um, if 
you are someone who, or you have a patient who has a lifetime history of depression, that that's really becomes an opportunity to screen for prediabetes and diabetes going forward so that that can be detected as early as possible to help people manage blood sugars as effectively as possible uh, in real time. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the other thing that we have been learning over the past 25 years is that um, diabetes, when diabetes and depression go together, they have a significant impact across the board. So we have learned that um, diabetes is hard. Having depression on top of it does not make it any easier. Um, and so it's not surprising to know that um, studies that have looked at um, self-care behaviors and adherence to self-care behaviors uh, over time is that when people have diabetes and depression, self-care for diabetes is harder. Um, mm -hmm. And so adherence is, in, is negatively impacted. Uh, we also know that there is a modest relationship between depression and A1C. And that is that uh, when people have higher levels of depressive symptoms or they meet criteria for clinical depression, that uh, A1C levels can rise. There may be multiple reasons for that, but certainly self-care, um, comfort, comfort, eating, uh, more sedentary behaviors, all of that certainly can contribute to increased A1Cs. Um, we also know that uh, there is a significant relationship and a long-term relationship between depression and diabetes complications. So those are the long-term complications that go hand in hand with diabetes. Uh, whether that's uh, vision, uh, decrements to vision or vision loss, uh, kidney disease, heart disease, uh, sexual dysfunction, um, uh, really across the board of diabetes complications. And so when people have depression on top of their diabetes, the risk of more severe diabetes complications uh, increases. And uh, that, again, is true for people with type 1 diabetes as well as people with type 2 diabetes. And then if that weren't enough um, for mm. us to be concerned about diabetes and depression, we also know that certainly depression decreases quality of life. So that's, it, it's not, nobody enjoys living with diabetes and depression. So that's a very important piece for us to consider. And then, um, <clears throat> and then added to that is an increased risk for mortality. And that's been work that's been done by Wayne Caton's group at the University of Washington and Elizabeth Lynn and others who have observed that people who have both diabetes and depression have an increased risk for mortality compared to either disorder alone. Um, interestingly, we initially thought that maybe that was because of heart disease, because depression goes with heart disease, diabetes goes with heart disease, and maybe that that was the the uh, the combination that made this much more difficult for people. Um, but it turns out that it's actually all cause mortality. Um, so people die from a variety of different kinds of, from a variety of different kinds of causes. <clears throat> mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it, when they have both diabetes and depression. So depression is very important for us to notice and to listen for um, as healthcare providers. So one of my recommendations to all of my colleagues um, is to screen for depression. Um, it's very important that as healthcare providers, 
We ask the questions, whether that's on a form that we have people complete when they ahead of their appointment or whether it's uh, in the context of a virtual or an in-person visit uh, with healthcare providers. That can be primary care providers, that can be specialty care providers. It's very important that we ask about depression. Not only is it related to A1C, but it also may be a marker potentially for other kinds of medical concerns that are happening. And so the more, the more we know about it, the more we can take steps to further evaluate uh, and then ultimately uh, to make referrals mm -hmm. uh, to, uh, to the resources that patients need to be mm -hmm. able to, to uh, address depression. And the really good news about diabetes and depression is that it can be treated. So if our listeners take away only one nugget from this mm -hmm. podcast, my hope is that they will take away, whether you're a patient, a family member, or a healthcare provider, that um, depression in diabetes can be effectively treated. We do not have to struggle with depression. And in fact, the less amount of time we spend struggling with depression, the better our outcomes will be. Mm -hmm. um, some of my own work, we have been interested in how long people spend in a depressive episode when they have clinical depression. And what we've observed in now two different samples of people with type 2 diabetes, so these are adults in their 50s and 60s predominantly, who have had diabetes for at least 10 years, uh, is that depression, when it comes, it stays. So the average length of a depressive episode in the general population is between eight and 12 weeks, which is long enough, right? Yeah. For people with diabetes in our two samples, folks have been struggling with depression upwards to two years. So just a single episode of depression has affected them for two years. And the average duration of all types of depression that have affected people over the course of their lifetime has been upward to five years. So that's a very long time in a person's life to struggle with depressed mood, sleep, appetite, concentration, fatigue, all of those things that come together to count as depression. So, we, you know, I really encourage healthcare providers to look early and often for depression. Um, the American Diabetes Association standards of care for people with diabetes and the treatment of diabetes recommends that people are screened for depression at least once a year. And, uh, and then regularly when there are changes to the course of disease, whether that's the diagnosis of depression, or I'm sorry, the diagnosis of diabetes, or uh, the onset of diabetes complications or significant changes in people's health status. Those are all great times to do screening. Screening can be done very uh, efficiently. So time is a, a, a major factor in our lives as healthcare providers. We wanna be as efficient as possible. Um, we can do that with simple measures that are free and available such as the PHQ-8 or 9, mm -hmm. which was designed to uh, specifically for primary care practices um, and is incorporated into a number of different electronic health record systems now, electronic medical record systems. Um, we can do it even more simply by asking just a couple of questions. Tell mm -hmm. me about your mood. Have there been any changes in your mood, uh, in your energy, in your interest in things that you would normally enjoy? Mm -hmm. 
These are simple questions. They don't have to take a tremendous amount of time in the clinical encounter. Um, and they give us as healthcare providers vital information that we need to be able to uh, make decisions about what the next step should be in terms of evaluation and ultimately referral or treatment, depending mm -hmm. on what our role is. So there are simple steps we can take to get mm -hmm. to the core nuggets of the information and then um, to, to really maximally uh, assist our patients. I just, I am impressed with the amount of progress that's been made. Um, my lived experience would be my grandfather who suffered with diabetes. And um, ultimately, um, that was a part of his demise. But um, we as kids growing up um, around our grandparents could tell that um, through the years he suffered with, I would say, anxiety and depression associated with his diabetes and his heart disease um, and it got progressively worse and this now you're talking about in the 70s and mm -hmm. and my grandparents did not seek out treatment right it was just something that you lived with and you suffered with and um you know when we started to see the mood changes and his body appearance changing um uh, he had some gout that started mm -hmm. to set in as a result. Mm -hmm. And um, ultimately, we as a family had to pull together as and to support my grandma um, with with m compliance, right? And maintenance mm -hmm. with his diabetes. But I didn't know if anxiety might be another trigger. Um, I know we talk about depression, but anxiety can also be, a cover-up sometimes and the resistance to accept reality. <laughs> does that make sense? It does. It does. You know, and, and uh, it, so a number of themes I think are really, you know, evident in your lived and your family's lived experience with diabetes. So, and thank you for sharing that. Um, and, and one of those themes I think is really important to underline, which is that diabetes is, we assign that as a diagnosis for individuals. Um, and diabetes is a family affair, right? So there's a person with diabetes and then there are there is the, the family and friends and community that surrounds that person who care for that person. And diabetes affects everyone. Mm -hmm. um, and it affects everyone differently. So the person with diabetes internal experience of their uh, diabetes may be very different than their spouse's experience or their adult child's experience or their grandchildren's experience, right? Um, and that's true of families in general. Um, we, we all use our own lenses uh, when we interact with one another. Um, and that I, I think becomes even more heightened uh, when people are managing a chronic illness and I think diabetes in particular. Um, and so it does affect people in different ways. Um, anxiety is, it's a great question about anxiety because it is related. It can co-occur with people uh, with depression in the general population and for people with diabetes. Um, and uh, that has, you know, as much to do with changes in brain chemistry, um, which we understand, you know, is part of the anxiety experience, as well as fundamental feelings of safety. Mm. So I think it's, you know, it's important for us as healthcare providers to be tuned into when our patients are feeling safe, 
when our patients are feeling overwhelmed and uh, what we can do to help help them feel safer and equip them with the tools that they need to be able to do that self-care. Um, and uh, I think this is a topic that hasn't received nearly enough uh, attention. Um, and so uh, we have different terms for that. And later on, I'll, I'll, we'll I'll be happy to share with you some additional thoughts about a, a different psychosocial experience called diabetes distress separate from depression, but related, um, and, uh, and separate from anxiety, but also related. Uh, and we can talk a little bit more about that. But I, I do think that that's an important uh, underlying emotional experience for people of, do they feel safe with their diabetes? Do they even feel safe having the diagnosis of diabetes? Mm -hmm. Is that so overwhelming that they shut down? From a healthcare provider perspective, that might look like the person is in denial. And I'm using air quotes here to with that term because um, I think it's probably not the it, it's not always a fair characterization uh, for people who um, are not engaged with their diabetes. Um, but if we if we are working with a patient who feels to us like they might be in denial, I think that's a really important sign for us as healthcare providers to become curious. What is it about diabetes that is um, difficult for this person to engage in? In the case of type two diabetes, it is invisible until complications arise. People tend not to notice hyperglycemia, high levels of blood sugars uh, over time because the body acclimates. Um, and that's tricky because if you're not noticing it, then that's not something that we necessarily tune into. Uh, we, we grow up in our lives learning to listen to our body. And when something's wrong, we'll get a signal. Um, but in the case of type 2 diabetes and rising blood sugars over time, particularly if they're rising gradually, we don't get any signals inside our body. Um, so that might be a challenge for people to try to put those two things together. I'm told that something's wrong with me, um, but I don't feel it. And if I don't feel it, maybe I'm not attending to it because I don't know what to attend to. Um, for other people, it may be that, that self-care behaviors um, that we recommend may be overwhelming. Uh, how do I fit that into my life? I don't even know where to begin. So those, as healthcare providers, if we're curious about the, the person with diabetes who's not engaged with their self-care, um, that's a great place for us to begin because that will help us understand where the patient is coming from and then ultimately to build bridges between their theories of health and our theories of health. Um, and that's where we'd like to be, is to build a bridge. Great, great information today. Well, we want to thank you for getting us started with our first podcast. And uh, we're going to welcome you back for our second podcast in our series of, I think we're going to try to do three or four here. Thank you for joining the conversation. If you found this conversation of interest, we encourage you to join the conversation by visiting us online at qsource.org slash conversation podcast. The conversation was produced by QSource, the Quality Innovation Network Quality Improvement Organization for Indiana, under a contract with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Content does not necessarily reflect CMS policy.